Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. Today we go behind the scenes and talk a little bit more about what was the final episode of our fourth season, Ricky Won't Quit. It was produced in partnership with our friends at Pineapple Street Media. Shout out to them. And it was hosted by friend of the show, Clinton Yates of The Undefeated. And he is here now to talk more about this episode, Ricky Henderson and athletes who just won't let go. Clinton. Hey, man. How are you? Congratulations on uh, doing this piece. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. It is close to me as a massive baseball fan and in general, simply someone who loves more than just the game, but the stories around the game as well. I was really happy to be a part of it. You and I have been friends for a while, and then we've always talked. We both ended up at ESPN. We've talked about wanting to work together. So you yep. just started talking a little bit about it, but you know, why was it that this was a story where we finally were able to do that and, and this felt like one where you wanted to jump in and help tell it? Well, for me, as a baseball fan, and as particularly as a black American, Ricky Henderson holds a very special place. Of course, a lot of people like Ricky because Ricky was a superstar, but Ricky represented a certain type of player and a certain type of star on top of that that doesn't really exist in baseball that much anymore. I mean, if you think about the brothers that are actually playing ball now, you don't get... Not that you were ever going to get a new one like Ricky, but mm-hmm. you don't really have from not just a personality standpoint, but also a skill standpoint, a size standpoint. I mean, Ricky was not a big dude. He had thick calves. He had a quick hands and he was fast and he obviously had a lot of power. But this guy wasn't, you know, a Ryan Howard type or a Jason Hayward. He wasn't some massive guy. He was a very sort of normal sized human being. Yeah. But, uh, you know, guys like Ricky Henderson just aren't around baseball anymore and I love sort of who he was and what he represented to the game at that time. Could have been a football player. Instead, went on to be one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Heck of a story. Do you think, weirdly, that Ricky is undervalued now as one of the greats of all time? I and mean, give us some context for where you'd put him. I do. That's, that's actually a very good question because if you think about what the stolen base record is, everybody looks at it as what Ricky Henderson owns, but I think people forget what the value of the stolen base is in general in baseball. You know, these days, guys don't steal a lot of bags. If you ask a pretty serious baseball fan who leads the league in stolen bases at any given point of the season, they're probably not going to be able to tell you because it's not exactly a glamour stat the way it once was because of the way, you know, sort of analytics have moved strategy away from, you know, risking that type of out in, mm-hmm. the, in particular situation. But people forget there was an element of the stolen base that was simply exciting as a fan. And so I think that what Ricky brought to the game was something that people have just forgotten ever really existed. And that plays into what you're saying, Jody, which is that, oh, yeah, you look at that record. Oh, yeah, he holds a stolen base record. Cool. Oh, sure, he's got the most leadoff homers of all time. Okay, like what is that? You know what I mean? What does that really mean? But if you think about those two things in conjunction, yeah, you get on first, he might be on third, or he might just take you out. My man was fun to watch. Yeah. You know, not to mention his, you know, his sort of flair in the field, popping his glove all around his chest and all this other stuff. I mean, Ricky was a really fun player for a really long time. And uh a lot of people sort of think he was very unique, but that's that's what black baseball was from a personality standpoint. Not to say he wasn't unique, but you know, that's what it was up until a certain point and Guys like him are sort of the end of an era when it came to how, yeah. how brothers play in this league anymore. And we'll circle back a little to the personality stuff as well. But it, just as you were describing the stolen base, I mean, it is this interesting act uh, in sports. And there's a number of others like it. But it's one of these things where it's like if he's on first 
everyone kind of knows exactly what he wants to do and then he still does it and there's yeah. this weird thrill there i mean you know i think there's probably an equivalent in basketball where it's like well Steph Curry wants to put up a three-point shot from wherever he is, and he's still going to do it. Everyone knows he's going to do it, and it's still going to work. But something about the stolen base kind of feels like even more just compelling in that way. Yeah, it's an exciting play. People complain about how baseball these days is nothing but homers and strikeouts, mm-hmm. and balls in play are down, and you know hit ratios are all messed up. But stolen bases are fun, very plainly. It's exciting. Guys running down the base, bang, yeah. bang plays. You never know what's going to happen. So let's get into a little bit of what our lens was for this piece, which is this the fact that Ricky played until he was 46 years old, and we look at the very end of his career. And um, as we do, if people have been listening to these bonus episodes, in it we try and highlight a piece of tape that didn't actually end up in the final product. You know, th- these episodes take months and months to report, and they go through many different iterations. One piece of tape that I think we should highlight, because I think it's really fascinating and gets to this central theme, Ricky Henderson actually we talk about his time on the San Diego Surf Dogs in the Independent League in 2005. He had This was his third stint in San Diego itself. He had played for the Padres as well in the major mm-hmm. leagues, and it was one of those teams that he had bounced around on. And in 2001, when he was on the Padres, he was playing alongside Tony Gwynn, another legendary player, one of the you know all-time greats, and certainly Mr. Greatest, Padre. Mr. Padre, exactly. <laughs> and... In 2001, there was a game that was Tony Gwynn's official retirement game, and Ricky Henderson was there. And funny enough, Ricky Henderson got his 3,000th hit in that game and kind of, I don't want to say upstaged Tony Gwynn or whatever, but had his moment as well. But the really fascinating thing, and we'll play this clip, is kind of how both of these players were being positioned as on the brink of retirement. So let's take a listen to that scene as it existed in, in an earlier version of this documentary. I'd like to say thank you to Tony and Ricky for giving baseball fans everywhere so many thrills for so many years. And I've got a small bit of advice for all you fans. Start making your travel plans to Cooperstown for summer 2007. Thank you. So I don't know if you have a reaction to that. I mean, to me, just the very notion that Cooperstown is kind of there saying, all right, guys, here's the plan. We're ready for you. Time to ride off into the sunset. <laughs> right. It's like uh, sort of pallbearers to your career yeah. on some level, <laughs> yeah. taking you six feet deep. But there's uh, what's fascinating to me about that as well is, as for Cooperstown, that's a job <laughs> that I don't know that I would love to have because even though Ricky is a guy who didn't want to retire, I'm sure there's a lot of players who don't want to sort of – I mean, you think you want to see Cooperstown come, but yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of guys who think, well, dang. I guess I'm not playing anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess that decision is taken out of my hands. And though it's a good thing to be honored by the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, it's kind of a, an, uh, I don't know, it's kind of an awkward omen yeah. to have somebody come to you and tell you it's time to hang it up, buddy. Yeah. And not be your agent or your family. And and there is that scene in the in the piece where one of Ricky's teammates, Paul Abbott, describes them sitting there watching the Hall of Fame ceremony. I remember him watching the Hall of Fame ceremony. On TV, sitting there with them while we're in the cafeteria, the, the, the kitchen, eating lunch, and uh, him speaking up, saying, you know, I don't want to be there. We're like, what? He said, nah, I don't want to be there. Like, what are you talking about? He goes, because if I'm there, I'm not here. That means he was done playing. He didn't want to be done playing. He, he wanted to play forever. And Ricky says... I don't want to be there at the Hall of Fame because if I'm there, it means I'm not here, which I think is a really telling moment. And you kind of do these retirement tours 
are sort of awkward but also sweet and um you can tell that sometimes players are gritting their teeth i think of like kobe's like final year where he did that oh, weird retirement uh, thing and let people us are not like forget jeters yeah and oh. they're like giving him gifts oh. and all this stuff but it's also like that oh, was yeah. Yeah. That was a horror on baseball. Excuse me here, but I mean, not to get off on a tangent, but those retirement tours were garbage. And so to think about how that was done, it is almost neat and succinct and almost quaint in a way compared to the way some of these legends go out yeah. these days. And that's kind of an interesting thing to compare at this stage. Kobe is one of them as well. But I remember Jeter. I mean, the gifts he was getting were ridiculous. That's <laughs> yeah. almost an episode in itself, Jeter. Yeah, I know. Seriously, maybe. Okay, let's stock it away. But but so let's go back to Ricky, though. So why, you know, either in this moment where Cooperstown is saying, okay, here's, here's the path, you know, walk off into the sunset and come into our warm embrace, or just in general, what do you feel like you learned about why Ricky – did not walk that path when players like Tony Gwynn or others did at the end of their careers? I think it's because Ricky was the type of player who felt that if he could show up and he was in shape, there's no reason he shouldn't be on a roster. He's Ricky Henderson. And that's not an ego thing. That is a big league service thing, and that is a skill thing. Because quite frankly, he was probably right most of the time. He's a good person to have around your locker room. He was a vet in the major leagues for years. He obviously had rings. He obviously had experience. These are what you call clubhouse guys. And you don't think of Ricky Henderson as a clubhouse guy because, well, he's Ricky Henderson. But those kind of players don't exist anymore. So there was a time when a legend could sort of retire into clubhouse guy role. And there was a time when a guy came up and maybe he was only just a clubhouse guy role. The 25th man kind of thing. For Ricky to feel that he wasn't even given the chance to do that, at least to his where he thought he could do it, I think that's what really stung him. He's like, bro, I don't got to start in left field. I don't even have to lead off. You know what I mean? But you're telling me you can't find room on your roster for Ricky Henderson? I think that was hard for him to accept on every single level. Yeah, and we kept going back and forth, and I think you can really hear it in those tapes, which was such a – you know, such a coup to be able to find those tapes of that final year that Tammy Bellman had recorded. And I couldn't, listening to those tapes, there's this mix of, you know, indignation, bitterness, desperation, but also, as you were describing, just genuinely like, I think I can compete. And then also, I love the game. I want to be here. It's a real mix of emotions going on in terms of those last few years. Absolutely. One of the things that really sort of bummed me out about, you know, when we were reporting this and just sort of thinking about what, you know, what message we were trying to, you know, what we were trying to explain about Ricky is that Ricky apparently wasn't very good at coaching. And, <laughs> I, you know, that, that that's a really unfortunate thing because that in baseball is very much a path that is an availed one that is not availed in a lot of sports the same way. If you were a pretty good ball player, you can find your way onto a bench and wear a uniform every day, even if you aren't necessarily playing the game. And that, to me, is something that I was always surprised that Ricky did not avail himself of from an opportunity standpoint longer. I mean, he does end up with the Mets. Yeah. And And now he's with the A's in some capacity. You know, now he's with the A's. But for me, I'm stunned that Ricky at this stage isn't a third base coach or a first base coach or a bench coach somewhere in the major leagues. And if that's not what he wanted, that's not what he wanted. However... I thought if you had asked me, you know, as a younger man, do I think Ricky Henderson will eventually be a major league baseball manager? I would have told you yes. 
Also, shout out to baseball for being the only sport where the coaches and the managers get to wear the full uniform like they're still playing. That's always been very strange to me, but that's for right. another conversation. Um, but but on that question, I mean, there are scenes in this piece, and we heard stories about him being very selfless in terms of coaching, trying to teach guys and even the other team uh, some tricks. And so, you know, maybe not even on a coaching perspective, but were you surprised to hear some of those stories about Ricky being however you want to describe it, humble, selfless, uh, truly a team guy, a mentor, and all of those things? I wasn't. And I think that's one of the things that particularly for baseball players, a lot of fans don't necessarily understand is that dudes and how they act toward the media are certainly not indicative of how they behave towards either their teammates or everybody else in the clubhouse included. And that was something that Ricky, I think, you know, played very well. Certainly he wasn't some completely different person, but what I think the people who were covering him took from it was a very different thing than the people who were playing with him or with him all day because it just meant something different. You know, when you've got a guy referring to himself in the third person, when you sit down with him for an hour a day before the game and after the game, it's going to sound pretty crazy. But when you hear that guy all day and he's part of your clubhouse and your team, it's not as weird, you know. So for me to hear that he was, you know, willing to teach and all that, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, most most guys who are good and who manage to hang on that long in the game anyway are good at that. If you're not a jerk, you're probably going to end up on a team, even if it's not at the level that you want. And so that, to me, was not a big surprise. Yeah. So you're starting to get into a little bit about the public perception of who Ricky was, which we touch on a bit in the piece. And I want to talk about that and actually play some tape related to that. But first, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Clinton Yates. Let's talk about who Ricky was and moreover his perception in the public eye. And one of the people we spoke to for this piece, and he didn't end up in the final piece, is um, Jesse Thorne. So some folks will know that name. He hosts the podcast Bullseye. He started this great podcast network, Maximum Fun. Just a good all-around podcast person and dude, and also a huge Ricky Henderson fan. And so we went out and we, we talked to him. He didn't end up in the final piece, but he had some pretty strong takes and words about how Ricky was thought of in the public imagination. So let's take a listen to Jesse. I think that there are two reasons that Ricky Henderson gets reduced to anecdotal narrative. One is the stories are great. They're great stories. (laughs) I mean, the thing about him framing his first million dollar paycheck or whatever like, that's that's a great story, you know? I don't know how true it is, but it's great. You know, there's, there's something funny and charming about it. And Ricky Henderson was and is unlike any other baseball player ever in his abilities and in his manner. And for that reason, he stands out, particularly in a sport of conformists. The secondary part of that is that those narratives about Ricky Henderson almost invariably fit into racist, classist assumptions about what a baseball player should and shouldn't be. And they are memes that promote the idea that he is lazy, selfish, athletically gifted but dumb, all these things that our culture expects of poor black people. So that's Jesse Thorne. Clinton, you know, any any reaction to that? You know, when we first went into this, 
In terms of the verbiage we use describing Ricky, you might remember, I was very sensitive to this because I think I agree with that to a certain extent. Um, he went a little further with it than I thought in terms of how people actually felt, which kind of made me uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. that's a different discussion. You know, I mean, sure, there's that element of it, but, uh, you know, the people who felt that way about Ricky, for me, were just not really baseball fans. And that's understandable. You know what I mean? If you were watching Ricky, the personality or the celebrity, it was easy to feel that way. But F all that, man, Ricky was out there playing ball. You know what I'm saying? All you had to do was watch the games in order to understand what he was really all about. And so, you know, I mean, look, the truthfulness of the million-dollar check notion, I mean, listen, there's a lot of baseball players that were like Ricky Henderson. Yeah, Most baseball players just weren't as good as Ricky Henderson. Right? That's what I think there's a misunderstanding there in terms of what he's specifically talking about. There's stories about Manny Ramirez. I remember there's a story I heard where he was driving a reporter around, and he opened up his glove box for something, Reporter looks in the glove box. He's got like 25 game checks in there that he had just stuffed in the glove box after games because he was just, you know, just yeah. didn't care. He was making that much money. I mean, you know, I, and that's not a knock. You know what I'm saying? That's not to say anybody's lazy or anybody's stupid. You know, that's just how guys are in terms of, you know, what they can afford to do and what they can afford not to do. So, yeah, yeah. any I mean, 24 I, year old or whatever who ends right. up with that kind of money is probably not going <laughs> to yeah, handle it very well. Right. It's not a big deal. So, yes, do I think that that was a part of why people probably didn't realize what they thought about Ricky? Yeah. But at the same time, there's plenty of folks out there who like Ricky for the right reasons. And I would consider myself one of them. Yeah. But there is this larger conversation, and it does seem baseball specific for all of the kind of um, things we've been discussing about the sort of trappings of the game and this sort of old school notion of the game. I mean, we're still seeing it. Today, with you know, this people lose their minds over bat flips and so forth. Right. So, I mean, is there a race element to that, or is it really just more like if you show personality, you are crossing some sort of unspoken line, and there's going to be an element of baseball, uh, old school culture that's going to try and slap you down for that? There's absolutely a race element to that, and uh, it's not just a race element as much as it is a national element. Hmm. The United States is the only place where people act like this when they play baseball. If you watch the World Baseball Classic, you know, you'll see some extremely fun environments in all of those games. And by the United States, I mean the U.S. and not Puerto Rico, because although Puerto Rico is part of this nation, it is an entirely separate baseball nation. But what I'm saying is this this notion that, you know, the state don't show anybody up is like the way you play baseball is also something that really only exists at certain levels of baseball as well, namely the big leagues. You go to a college game, you go to a high school game, dudes are bat flipping all over the place, talking trash, because that's fun. That's how it is. And so when you get to the top, things are a little different because obviously it's a professional environment and it's not quite the same in terms of you know the playing field, proverbially, not just literally. And yeah, there's a race element to that, but it's also a national element as much as anything. Um, let's come back to Ricky and t- towards the end of his career, because I think there was a moment when we were working on this piece where, you know, we, we spent a lot of time trying to get our heads around, okay, Ricky played until he was 46 and he had all these records and then could have walked away, as we've been describing, with all these records under his belt, and then he just kept playing. And I think we showed, and I think we've all come to understand that there that there wasn't that we shouldn't think of that as sad or kind of like, oh, this guy can't let go. We, you know, there were real reasons that he felt like he wanted to play and he loved the game and so forth. But it almost also circled around to so much of the Ricky Henderson legend is about 
the records. And so in a weird way, the playing for that long is just another thing that you can add to all the hits, all the stolen bases. Oh, and by the way, he played to age 46. So it's almost like it burnishes his legend as opposed to eats into it. That's an interesting way to look at that because one of the thought exercises I did as we were doing this project was what do I really think of Ricky Henderson's legacy? You know, that was a question I asked myself over and over in terms of his baseball career. And to me, it was that it was that he is a baseball lifer. And that's not a term you normally use for people who aren't in the big leagues their whole lives, but that is effectively what I came to at the end of this. And maybe it was mainly as a player. You still don't hear him talk a lot, even though he's with the Oakland A's. It's not like he's necessarily a very, he's not one of these out there guys, like a Magic Johnson with the Lakers kind of people or anything like that. You know, I mean, to me, Ricky Henderson is a baseball lifer and that is as high a compliment as you can pay to any ball player there is. Yeah. One other thing that we kind of were not planning, but we just actually noticed probably pretty late in the process is that two of the stories from this season, uh, the first story and the last story, were actually about players who were teammates together on the Oakland A's in the in the mid 80s during their heyday, Jose Canseco and Ricky Henderson. And then both of the stories we tell about them are in 2005 at the exact same time. And in 2005, Jose Canseco is writing this book, Juiced, that is like bringing burning baseball down to the ground for all these petty and weird reasons, as we show in the documentary. And Ricky Henderson is quietly or not so quietly plugging away still playing baseball for the san diego surf dogs and so i don't know if you i don't know how we tie those two together but i don't know what it says about these two players at the same point in their career and the kind of choices and path that they ended up at these two incredibly different places i can tell you exactly what it says ricky henderson cared about baseball jose canseco cared about money If you look at everything that Jose Canseco did after he was blackballed from the game, it all came down to the fact that he couldn't make a living. I'm not saying that's not a thing to be concerned about. I'm just saying that that was primarily his motivation. You see him trying to box people for cash and celebrity, you know, events and so forth. That's his business. I'm not judging what his desire was, but Jose Canseco could have found himself back in the game. I honestly believe. If he so chose. Instead, he chose to burn it down because he thought he was unfairly cut out of what could have been a far more lucrative career. Yeah. Ricky yeah. Henderson just continued to play baseball. Right. Even that, at the lowest levels. That to me is the difference in terms of who those two guys are. So we're going to start to wrap up here, but, um, do, do you have any thoughts? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but does this feel like it got you thinking just about, letting go and the end of careers i mean i feel like a lot of 30 for 30s are about that i think of the rick flair one even a totally different world but you know that's that documentary about him is really about his his, the fact that there was no difference between his persona and his real person and so that when his wrestling career ended he didn't have a real life to kind of go back to um do you has this changed the way you think about athletes at towards the end of their career and the fact that often when they retire they still have most of their lives ahead of them you know the line that really stuck with me in the end was what nick garris said about how there was something almost how the legends get paid back the baseball is like a it's almost like a living thing it like pays legends back i mean cal ripkin in his final all-star game when he hit that homer Derek jeter hitting a home run for his 3000th hit it was it's special to see moments like that and to be a part of that and it wasn't on the stage where everybody could watch it on tv it wasn't on the stage where everybody could 
read about it in the paper or turn on ESPN and, and see it. You had to be there to feel that and see that and be, in, be there with him. And it was the way it was supposed to be. It was the way a legend should be. That's the way he should go out, just like that. And there was something almost more poetic about the fact that it happened for Ricky on a stage that really indicated how much he loved the game. Because a lot of people probably didn't necessarily realize that until it went that far. And, you know, you talk about how it burnished his career in terms of the numbers and the longevity, but to me it burnished it as much on a desire level as it did anything else. His personality was, you know, outsized in a lot of minds. A lot of people thought a lot of ridiculous things. But if you're willing to go that far, you really love baseball. And that's something that I hadn't really thought of in terms of it's not easy to prove that you still care about the game when you go out. And Ricky managed to do it, especially it's not easy to prove that if you don't go out on top. You know what I mean? There's Mm -hmm. a lot of awkward ways to fumble out of the game. And he didn't do it, in my opinion, even though for many people, even being in the Golden League at all would have qualified as such. Yeah, and I mean, shout out to Nick Guerra who – was just so thoughtful and awesome yeah. in this piece. And that piece of tape in particular is like among my favorites, period, that we've sort of had in the 30 for 30 series. But I, I will just to push back just for the sake of pushing back on that. You know, when I listen to that, I think it is beautiful. I think his notion of baseball is magical in this way and it, and has these moments that you can't anticipate. And he says, you know, we wouldn't have, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way for Ricky to have his final moment where no one was really paying attention. But is that just the kind of thing you say when no one is paying attention and you want to justify it? Or is that is there genuinely like in, 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 you know, in a vacuum? Is that really how Ricky Henderson should have had his best, his last moment? I don't know about that. But Nick Guerra is the one saying yeah, that, yeah. Jody. Of course, he yeah. wouldn't have wanted it any other way because yeah. he wouldn't have gotten to meet Ricky Henderson and play with him. So I, to true. me, that is honest. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, I see your point. But I think that was an earnest statement from Nick. I mean, it made sense. He got to see something that made sense to him. And. You know, if it was a little bit of Nick Garris and baseball career ending as well, what a, what a great way to do it. Yeah, for sure. All right, we're we're at the end here, so we'll wrap up. But while we're doling out shout-outs, I just want to say, again, thanks to Pineapple Street Media and thanks to our own Julia Lowry Henderson, who worked really hard on this as an editor and project manager and just did fantastic work. So this was a true team effort, but I, I really love how it, you, how it came Thank together. You there you go. So that's the end, and I guess that formally concludes this season. Obviously, if you haven't heard our archives, you can go back and listen, go back to the Bikram series that Julia did, or go back to our first season or two. And as we teased on the last episode, 2019 is going to be a big year for us, including this anniversary series. It's the 10th anniversary of 30 for 30. We're going to be doing a series of conversations about some of our favorite films. So there's a lot to look forward to, and I will say thanks again to you, Clinton Yates. Thank you, sir. One other thing to look forward to, and I'll just throw a plug out there, is that we have a couple live events coming up. So go to 30for30podcast.com slash events. There's one in early December in New York City. We'd love to see you. Just keep your eye on that page and on our social media for the information. And I don't do this very often, but if you have a chance and you want to go and rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, it does help. Go for it. Or just spread the word. Holiday travel is coming up. It's a good time to catch up on this season, previous seasons. And also, we've been getting lots of great notes, both just in reaction to this season and with ideas about shows and just telling us what we're doing well, what we're not doing well. You can email us, 30for30podcasts at ESPN.com. Thanks again for listening. My name is Jody Avergan. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.